you came here for So don't hit me with the shot We ain't got all night, but I'ma make it feel timeless Kiss the right places so you know where my mind been Kiss the right places, baby, you know what the vibe is I can't tell you what this ride is bad as I do It's bad as I do Alright, well Hello, 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 welcome everyone I am your host, Camille Cower, And I am so excited for you to have my guest today Is Mr. Rick French, he's the CEO and chairman of French West Lawn, and way how he got his start in the entertainment industry, and it's not the way you would think. So, I mean, from what I read, you started off as a journalist, but fill me in. How did you get your start? Well, th first of all, thank you for having me on, and Happy New Year to you. Uh, it's, it's nice to finally be able to do this. I know we've had to reschedule a few times. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I, I was a journalist. I began my career as a journalist, both a print and television. Um, did a lot of work in both mediums before segueing to public relations and advertising and um, starting my own firm almost 24 years ago, uh, which has grown to want, become one of the largest independently held PR and ad agencies in the world. And I guess with that challenge, um, checked off <laughs> I decided to uh, to get involved in the film business you know it you know when you when you own a PR and ad agency you're in the content creation business and you're in the distribution business um, you know we're distributing content every single day whether it's via social media or press releases or paid media so um, I decided a number of years ago to get involved in film financing and to learn the um, the entertainment side of the business and and really then create a platform for the creation and distribution of long form content. So it wasn't a big leap to go from one to the other, but I needed uh, need a little bit of time and education to uh, to learn that. So I, I started investing in uh, in films. Um, I guess about a dozen years ago, um, some I did well with, some I didn't do as well with. Um, a lot of in, in a lot of those cases, um, you know, it was uncredited because you were getting a, a guaranteed return on your money. So it was like any other kind of investment. If you were taking more risks and you weren't getting the guaranteed ROI, you'd often get the credit to go along with it for taking the risk. Um, I wasn't as interested in doing that at the time. Um, but uh, over the years, I decided to then segue from understanding how films are financed and and put together and how distribution deals are struck to then getting into actual producing. And uh, that's what I started to do a number of years ago. And it's it's been a journey for sure, especially now in the age of COVID. Well, you have a, such a unique perspective, too, to go from the finance side. What's your advice for filmmakers to get past the gatekeepers, to get their films greenlit? What would be some of your advice for those new filmmakers? Well, for, I had to like the story. You know, at, at, at the, uh, the beginning and end of that decision-making process was, was I really excited about the story that the producers and the filmmakers wanted to tell? Secondly, I had to look at it and decide, you know, was uh, was it something that I thought was commercially viable, you know, would get distributed, uh, would give me a return on on my investment. And, you know, and then third, was it something I wanted my name attached to or not? Um, there were certain projects where it was in and out and they needed the money and, you, you know, you weren't in love with it. But it might be successful. It might not. In other times, um, there were there was one that you know did extraordinarily well and you know received a lot of uh, awards and that kind of really got me excited in terms of um, wanting to be more hands on involved in in producing. Yeah. So what was that like the first time one of the films you worked on won an award? Yeah. You know, it was. Yeah. It was a. I was a. Um, early, early investor in development in uh, Dallas Buyers Club. And, uh, you know, obviously that film did extraordinarily well. I knew the guys who were putting the package together and producers and they were, uh, they were short on money and they actually had a very difficult time getting the money together to actually make that film. And, uh, you know, I came in for a, a small piece of it early on and it was exciting to, to watch the film 
come along and Matthew go through his transformation and uh, he was becoming ornery after not eating for six months and the film being delayed um, by uh, by not having all the financing in place. But ultimately it got made with a tremendous cast and then to see him and Jared Leto and the film get the recognition it did was was awesome. But, you know, it was one of those things where it was uncredited because I, I actually didn't even know any better at the time to ask for the credits and and things like that. Um, but, you know, things have changed a lot over over the years. And, uh, you know, when I made uh, the True Don Quixote uh, with a group of other people with uh, which stars Tim Blake Nelson and uh, we we won the Audience Choice Award at the New Orleans Film Festival beating Green Book. Um, it was amazing. It was amazing to have that feeling of like you've really made a great uh, little indie, critically acclaimed movie. Um, it was an Artois um, uh, nominee last year for best casting. It didn't win, but you know that's a uh, you know in the casting business that's that's the Academy Award, and um, you know so it was nice to to see. A film like that get its get its due. Um, you know, we were slated with that film to have um, a broader distribution deal, and then COVID hit, and it's changed the world. So, you know, now the challenge is that anything we're trying to make. You know, I have four different films in development right now at various stages, all of which were supposed to either go last year or first quarter of this year and none have been able to go into principal photography because of COVID. Oh, wow. Wow. Now, so that, um, we speak of COVID, but you also happen to live in North Carolina and film sometimes in North Carolina. What are the new factors that you have to think about as far as choosing a location when it comes to COVID and different tax incentives and the different rules and regulations that go about picking a location, not just maybe because it's based there or how it um, goes about the story. Yeah. So, you know, uh, Patrick Shanahan and I shot um, uh, The Fox Hunter here in Raleigh. The whole film was kind of set here as a Southern drama. And that was a lot of fun uh, to be able to uh, to make a film um, with a great cast all, all here. Um, we were really lucky in terms of landing um, Reese Thompson, who was well known for the perks of being a wallflower, and then Madison Eisman, who just blew up with the whole Jumanji franchise and so on. Ira David Wood III. Um, great movie. Um, it was picked up by a major distributor last summer, again, ready for distribution in theaters. Uh, major theatrical release and then that got shelved with COVID so we're kind of on hold to see where that goes but that was all shot here you know Clear Lake the Buddy Holly uh, biopic um, we're, we've been exploring whether to make it here and there were there, there's a desire to do that um, you know to be honest we've we've dug deep into the tax credit situation here in North Carolina and also the available uh, crew um, that we would need to make the film and the sound stages that we would need to make a film like this. And it's still on the table, um, but whether it actually gets shot here is still to be determined. Um, you know, Buddy Holly's story really takes place in two prime or th maybe three primary locations, Lubbock, Texas, Clovis, New Mexico, where he was making a lot of his music in New York City. So getting the exterior looks we need, you know, here in North Carolina to replicate those three places isn't the easiest thing. It then requires you to do um, a lot of soundstage um, uh, prop and set work to replicate the look. Yeah, and that's that's not uh, that's expensive and it's not as authentic. So. That comes into play when you compare that to, say, New Mexico, where some of this, they have available tax credits, a really good program, and, and some of it's set there. For, uh, Louisiana, that has a slightly better tax program than North Carolina, and, and we can get the looks we want exterior, and they have a lot more sound stages. So we're kind of going through this process to determine, can we really make it here? I mean, all things being equal, given that I live here and Patrick 
uh, wrote the screenplay for me. Um, and he's from here and we made the Fox Hunter here. If we could make it, we'd love to do it. I just don't know being honest about it, whether it's, it's really feasible, we'd be leaving a fair amount of money on the table to do it. And, you know, when you're in to those discussions with your financiers, they don't want to see you do that. They want to see you maximize the tax credits. And, and, um, and if you're not doing that, they're asking you why. For those that may not know, what is the big difference between the film incentives, tax incentives that North Carolina used to have compared to the film grant that we currently have that has all these different stipulations and there are and, and, and you know and and Guy Gassler who you know who runs the um uh the state program is, is fantastic to work with. He's uh um he's he's working really hard to bring production uh to North Carolina. The grant is different. Um with a with a tax credit, a transferable ones like let's just say Georgia has. Georgia has that 30%. And you can do two things. You can either finish your production, give them your locked picture, apply for it. You can apply for it up front to be sure that you're going to get it. When it meets all the requirements, you get that percentage of your spend back in the state. In North Carolina's case, the new program is really structured better for independent film than big budget film. And it is a cash grant and the cash grant comes to the producers sooner than often say Georgia or Louisiana would pay out. But your problem is that it's only for films under 20 million. So the big blockbuster films that we used to get are not eligible. Right. And as importantly, if you're paying a mate, an actor a sizable amount, which often you have to do to get these films greenlit, anything over, I believe, $2 million is not eligible for any tax credit. So let's just say that you've got, uh, you know, I've, I've got a film I'm doing with Dwayne Johnson that we're producing together. Well, Dwayne's fee, and again, this is this is just for example purposes. Dwayne can make 20, 30 million dollars as a fee on a movie. So you couldn't do a production here if only the first 2 million was eligible for tax rebates and the other, let's just say 18 million had to be left on the table at 30%. You would never be able to justify making the film here. That's the way that North Carolina's program is set up right now. And that's what makes it a bit challenging. So it's, 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 more conducive to say episodic television, to smaller independent films, to those that don't have a um, a, a really expensive uh, top of the package actor or really expensive you know director that's going to cost you multi million dollars. So, our you know, and then the truth be told, not without or I'm sorry, uh, Clear Lake, my buddy Holly one could could certainly qualify. And and my other film, Not Without Hope, the NFL survival drama that I'm doing with uh, Russell Wilson and Sierra and so on, uh, is based on a true story, also would fit below that 20 million. But again, you've got to you've got to balance it against the looks and everything else you need to uh, for the authenticity of your picture. And how does COVID play a part in this, or does it not at all? I mean, oh, it does. <laughs> I, I, I wish I could say otherwise. Um, yeah. Now, COVID has everything delayed. You know, I've got four projects right now that are supposed to have either been in production last year or begin principal photography on or before April 15th of this year. None of them have been able to go because of COVID. Um, safety protocols that are required, uh, concern among cast and crew about being on set, um, your ability to get a completion bond, uh, which financiers need in order to protect their investment. All of that comes into play. So we've had to back everything up. Um, I had two doc projects that are ready to go and we're ready to go, but those require one-on-one -on -one interviews that requires camera people to be in direct contact with the subjects 
and and we just didn't feel like it was safe. Um, and and in the two feature films, those there's a lot of cast, a lot of crew. You know, how do you do, for example, a film like Clear Lake, where you need crowd scenes? For these live performances in these uh, theaters, the Mandalorian for that. But, uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, there's ways you could compensate. There is, yeah. you know, there are stock footage. There's a lot of other things. It's just not the way we want to shoot the film. We feel like um, that particular film with Bruce Beresford, um, who directed Driving Miss Daisy and Breaker Moran. I mean, multiple Academy Award nominated director. Um, with him directing and the screenplay we have and kind of the timing of the story that we're telling, which really uh, leans in heavily to race relations in the late fifties um, that we believe we have a strong awards contending film. So if that's true and, and, and the people we have attached to, you know, this project, also believe that then we don't want to compromise on the way we shoot the film you don't want to take shortcuts just to get it done and and potentially impact the quality of it so in that regard we have to be patient as hard as it is with our cast our crew you know we've got our top line package that we're really excited about for that film that we announced uh, uh about six weeks ago and and we're just telling them hey be patient we'll work with everybody's schedules we're going to try to go in um, in May, but some of that's going to be based on how widely the vaccine has been made available to everybody, um, areas we might be able to shoot it in, and so on. The My film, uh, Not Without Hope, the survival drama, we were set to go in the Dominican Republic in early August of last year. Two weeks before... We were, we were in uh, pre-production. We had all our cast. We had, we had all our crew down there, our director. I was getting ready to board a plane. The tourism office decided to open the borders. They had had them closed to international travel, and they were not requiring COVID tests. So all of a sudden, the country, which is badly in need of tourism dollars because the Dominican Republic is so dependent upon that, opened its borders widely. And it broke all the COVID protocols they had promised us. So all of a sudden, it was putting our cast and crew in danger of exposure to COVID that wasn't there in what was going to be a bubble. And we had to stop pre-production because of the government's decision. And a movie that right now would probably be finishing post had to be completely delayed. So we we decided as a result of that, and we had a lot of money invested already in pre-pro, that now we have to, in order to shoot it when we want to shoot it, we're looking at potentially shooting it in Australia on the Gold Coast there because they've got a better handle on COVID and uh, better safety protocols and so on. So we've had to flip the entire um, plan to potentially shoot there. Now, whether we ultimately end up there is is to be determined because we've changed out our director and so on but there's so much that goes in right now to safely trying to um make any production and uh, you know it's just every single day it is fluid um and and we're you know we're hoping that all four of these can go in 2021 now as we plan but Honestly, I, I wish I had a crystal ball because uh, I, right now, if you ask me, are, are we going to be able to? I don't know. Yeah, well. From your experience with in the past predicting even the importance of using social media back in 2011 and working on this film, the importance of bringing people together of all races with the Buddy Holly film that you're working on with Clear Lake. Do you have any predictions on how we can come together again as a community and enjoy entertainment again, whether live entertainment, concerts, movies, and theaters? Do you have a prediction how that's going to change for the future since you've been so well at predicting in the past these different things? 
Yeah, you know, I mean, when, when you run a PR firm, you, you do a lot of social anthropology work where you're really trying to get ahead of trends and understand human behavior and and so on. So we're trying to do that and look out over the next three to five years as to how people will um, interact with one another. And it's going to be very interesting because um, there's a segment of, of the population that just can't wait to get back to being socially active with one another. There's also a segment of those that were introverts that never really enjoyed that, that have, to some degree, when you look at the research, enjoyed a bit more of the isolation because it fits their personalities. And those people, while they may not have been as frequently going out and so on, those people are more likely to see to kind of stay in the behavior of wanting to be almost self-isolating more within a very small group of people they know. So how does that affect what people will do and what they're willing to do? Well, if you were someone who was a germaphobe, for example, in the first place, yep, you're going to be less likely, the research is going to show, to quickly jump back in anytime soon until it can be proven that you can be you can go to these things safely. So will that affect whether people go into movie theaters or concerts or a sporting event? Absolutely. Um, will that be offset by the number of people that want to just rush back in to have this social interaction and experience and get back to life as we used to know it? Maybe. But it's it's very difficult. You know, it's 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 like reading tea leaves and as to how uh people truly will act. So you can talk to them, you can look at all the research, but ultimately their behavior is going to bear out what's going to happen. I think that theaters are in trouble. I think that um, we were already going down this path in which um, they were breaking the exclusive windows and shortening them between when they were going to be available. Um, and uh, for home viewing versus going into the theater. But if you go back and think about this, it is important to remember that that not more than a decade ago, there was a three-step process in, in kind of how we viewed content. Step one, you went to the theaters. Step two, six months later, DVDs became available. And you could go to Blockbuster or wherever, and you could you would rent your DVD. And if you were really anxious to see this, you would rent it at home, maybe buy it. Then it would be months later before it was available on cable. Now we're seeing things like Wonder Woman 1984, in which it's available in theaters and available at home on the same day. And so what are we doing? We're conditioning an audience to just watch from the comfort of their home. And now that people have become so reliant on streaming services and so on, and Netflix and Amazon and Hulu are directly financing projects that they can directly bring to their uh, subscriber base immediately, um, it's going to be really hard to bring people back into theaters. And if you're going to, if they're going to go to theaters, they're going to have to be for big event movies. And so that's what you're going to, I'm afraid, start to see. It's going to be harder and harder for an independent movie, a smaller great movie like Dallas Buyers Club, or others to get um, to get into theaters. And they may have to now rely on that um, either streaming or kind of the short pay-per-view window before something then becomes available, you know, at home for, um, you know, on, on cable viewing and so on. So I think theaters are in, a, are in a tough place going forward. No, I was wondering. I also think of it as being a way to kind of even the playing field because a lot of these independent filmmakers are now able to distribute directly to Amazon or Roku or different places, all these different platforms that have uh, kind of sproused up, so to speak, during this time. I mean, 
Isn't that another way for people just to get their content out there as well? Yeah, you know, I mean, it, it's hard to get a film put together and financed. You know, uh, today, the first step is not who can make a great film, but who is a proven director theatrically. Then the next step is you have to have a top line cast in which it's a movie that people, it's a destination movie that people want to go see. It's a Dwayne Johnson movie or it's a Charlize Theron movie or it's, you know, something like that. So it is so difficult these days to even put your package together for a financier to even be willing to say, I'll take the risk behind this. Um, and, and sometimes they're doing it without a distribution deal in place. Um, and so that's why you see the same movies being with the same 25 actors or pick your number all all coming out with the same you know dozen directors and 25 or so actors attached to these things because those are the ones that can get financed and and what it's done is it's it's really reduced our discovery of new talent the, the new talent that you're finding that people are really gravitating to is not necessarily through a studio breaking them anymore. It's through a streamer. It's through a, a cable network show. You know, uh, people like Zendaya who came out through Euphoria or my lead actor in the Buddy Holly biopic, clearly Rory uh, O'Connor. You know, he he broke out in a huge way through the stars series, you know, the Spanish princess, which is highly acclaimed and draws very big ratings. Um, we discovered through there. But but if if I was bringing him without the rest of the package and a Bruce Beresford and Stuart Benjamin who made Ray and La Bamba, and officer and a gentleman and all this. If I wasn't bringing that whole package together, I, I probably couldn't have gotten a Rory O'Connor greenlit. You know what I mean? So it, it's it's become so studios have become so risk adverse that they're, they're only putting money and they'll throw huge amounts of money, almost set to defy conventional wisdom at a big name. Right. Because they figure that's a better bet than betting on a lesser known one and letting the audience find, find the movie. And, and so it, it's a tough time right now to be in Hollywood. And, and one could argue there are more distribution outlets available to producers and filmmakers than there's ever been before. And that's absolutely true. And there's theoretically more money available to make those than there's ever been. It's just, they're all, it's all flowing to the same place. And, What's that? I said, and we need to figure out how to flow it to North Carolina. <laughs> we, we do. And, and I think North Carolina, um, you know, it, it will, production, has been solid, uh, in particular at Screen Gems in Wilmington. Um, you know, their stages seem to be relatively full with a number of productions always there. It's just that it's pivoted. You know, um, 15 years ago, we were getting the Hunger Games and we were getting major, major uh, productions here, big budget ones. You're just not seeing that the same way anymore. You're seeing um, somebody like DC who came in and, and uh, did Swamp Things, or um, I think it was Cinemax that was doing Banshee. But then when those shows end or they pull the plug on them, it's just gone. Like what, what happened with Swamp Things. And I know there was a huge uptick. I was out on those sets uh, when they were they were doing what they needed to do with the tanks for swamp things and things like that. But then it only lasted a pretty short time. So that's a blow locally because what happened when the tax credits went away is a lot of the crew went away. You know, the really talented crew that we had, crew base that we had here in North Carolina, a lot of them went to, um, went to Georgia. Some went to South Carolina, but most of them went to Georgia. And while they're all part of the same local union still, the way the guilds are set up here, um, it still requires bringing them back here. And for them to move back here permanently, you need just a constant flow of projects that they can work on. So a lot of the crew go back and forth between Georgia and North Carolina now. And, um, 
and I think if the if the state were open to a little bit more expansive tax program, you would have a better ability and a restructured program to bring some of that production back that was lost when it was changed in the legislative cycle under the McCrory administration. 2016 with HB2 also during that HB2 time. was a big, yeah. big hit to the state. You mentioned earlier that a lot of talent, especially union talent, has moved on to Atlanta or Georgia in order to keep working. So do you have any suggestions or any thoughts on what North Carolina needs to do as far as legislation-wise, whether it's approving more collective bargaining or even becoming a right-to-work state? I mean, you're from Michigan, so you know what it's like to live in a union state compared to not. Um, do you have any ideas or thoughts about what we can do to really support filming in North Carolina and making that happen here? Honestly, I don't see North Carolina ever changing its right-to-work state status. I think that's one of the things that has helped attract a lot of companies to the state was the fact that it, you know, it is a right to work state. It gives the employers the flexibility in its hiring practices. And I just don't see a pivot there. I, I don't think on a legislative level that there's any appetite to go in there and have a stronger union presence and, and so on. It just, um, it, it would be contrary to what's fueled the growth in the state. It's worth a shot. I am a Teamsters wife. So. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm in, I'm in bag, so I had to try. <laughs> understand completely. <laughs> I had to try for my union brothers and sisters. So, well, I, I mean, I want to at least give some, um, give an opportunity to also share a little bit more about this biopic that you're working on, because I find it so interesting that the um, diversity dynamic of it being the first. So interesting, the whole dynamic about the diversity part of it, where this was like the first concert where they were integrated. Yeah, you know, it was the first, um, the, the, the biggest show of stars tour, which was the tour that uh, predated the winter dance party where Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper and Richie Valens died. The biggest show star tour the year before was the nation's first racially integrated music tour. And it was the first in which white, black, and brown artists all shared a stage to the same audiences. Now, what was interesting about the tour is that while the artists were integrated, in many cases, the audiences were still segregated. So it was not unusual, in particular in the South, for artists to come here and be playing to a white audience downstairs and a black audience upstairs, or to a divided audience in which one side was white and one side was black. And the artists were sometimes told to not look at a particular side. Um, and so, you know, in, in the case of this film, you know, there, in 1978, the Buddy Holly story was made. It received a Best Picture nomination. Gary Busey got a Best Actor nomination. It was the first music biopic, real music biopic. But one of the things that a lot of the people who were alive at that time, including Maria Elena Holly and members of the cricket, said is they missed the big part of the story. They missed the fact that that this the tours themselves were very much like Jackie Robinson when he was breaking the color barrier in baseball. It took a lot of people bringing bring artists together to decide that they were going to make this social statement. And so that part was all just kind of glossed over and not even addressed in the original story. So. When I conceived this film along with a, uh, a lawyer from Maria Elena Holly, we started talking to her about those experiences at the time and some other artists that I knew from that period from my, uh, I'm on the board of trustees of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, so I'd had some, heard some stories about 
from artists who were living at the time or still living, you know, who, who toured at that period. So we started to kind of craft the story around um, the social fabric of the times. And the artists are the conduit for telling those stories. It's seen through the eyes of Buddy Holly, but also Clarence Collins of Little Anthony and the Imperials, who was a, a teen at that time playing on that tour, and, and, and other artists of the day, and how they didn't really see color, but society did. And, and so our film really heavily leans into that subject matter. And it's something that's really important to me because I happen to own the minor league baseball team, the Daytona Tortugas, where Jackie Robinson broke the actual color barrier. Jackie Robinson's first game in professional baseball, which is chronicled in the movie 42 with the late Chadwick Bosman, who did an amazing job with that film. Jackie Robinson played his first professional game in Daytona Beach, Florida. When other cities, when he was part of the Dodgers farm system, would not allow a black man to take the field, Daytona Beach did. And he was allowed, and it's well chronicled in that movie, to, uh, to take that field. And there was a Jim Crow section of the bleachers and so on. Well, I own the minor league team where he where he played that first game and we play at the same field where he played. And so the stories of that, and every time I walk into my stadium there, that resonates with me that this was a historic shrine. It's where he allowed for professional sports to become integrated and, and Buddy Holly and these artists in the same way allowed for entertainment and music to become integrated, even though, governments were still segregating the audiences that were seeing it. So the story became very personal to me. And, um, and so that's why we decided to embark on the project and, and make it. And so, um, you know, we put together, as I said, a, a great, we've got a great director in Bruce Beresford. He's an absolute legend. And um, you know, Rory O'Connor from uh, The Spanish Princess, who's a tremendously talented musician, is going to play Buddy Holly. He, he looks a lot like him, and he can perform the songs. And we are not using any of the masters for the entire film. So every single one of the 50-some songs that comprise the soundtrack of this movie, from Fats Domino to Little Richard to Buddy Holly and his music to the Imperials to Elvis Presley to Dion and the Belmonts, Richie Valens, J.P. the Big Bopper, all of that music will be originally recorded by the artists or the actors in this film. So we will not use the masters in any way. What an amazing experience. Not only what an amazing opportunity, not only to perform as these great icons, but also to get to sing their songs. Absolutely. Wow. So, you know, it, that becomes, um, that's quite a challenge. So when, when you're in the casting process, you have to have actors who can really sing. and. Um, so, no so you know, we, we, we attach Rory in that role. We think he's going to be sensational. We were uh, really fortunate to attract Diane Guerrero, you know, well-known star of Orange is the New Black. And she's the star of DC's Doom Patrol as Maria Lana Holly. Um, Colin Hanks is uh, attached to play um, uh, Norman Petty, who was both the brilliant but manipulative manager of Buddy Holly. And uh, and Nelly is attached to play Chuck Berry, and, and you know and when, I've known Nelly for a long time personally and his manager, and and when we approached him about playing a fellow St. Louis icon, you know he's done a lot of acting earlier in his career and so on. He you know he he had been during these discussions, you know he was doing really well on Dancing with the Stars and people were finding this new love and appreciation for Nelly. When we approached him, I sent him the script um, on a Sunday night through his manager, who's a dear friend of mine. Nelly finished his rehearsals on Sunday night, went back to his hotel, read the script, and Monday morning I woke up with a yes, he wants to do it. 
Now, you know how hard that is in, in Hollywood, where often it takes months and months just to get an actor to read a script. And Nelly, as busy as he was with all the recording he's doing, he's, you know, he's one of the top selling artists of all time, read it overnight with the idea that he would have the opportunity to play Chuck Berry, somebody he, he you know, uh, like himself as a St. Louis icon who he grew up emulating and said, yes, I want to do this. And so that was uh, that was pretty amazing. So we're, you know, we're really excited about uh, kind of the top line. We have a lot of other casts to announce. We just haven't done it yet. Um, that'll be in the next batch soon. I can't wait. Well, I'm excited with what you were able to share with us already. And I have, as a Diana Ross super fan, I have to ask, is there any way to get Diana Ross inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame separate from the Supremes? How can we make this happen? This is serious. Yeah. <laughs> you know, change.org. Listen, I, I could never argue with Diana Ross's candidacy for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Um, biopics, ladies. Yeah, I mean, you know, listen, um, one one of the all time greats. Uh, you know, the, the, the thing with with the Rock Hall is. There are so many incredibly deserving artists, and and we we only induct you know five to seven at the very most each year, and there's always a new batch that becomes eligible in a given year. So, you know, if if I look at um, 2021, artists like Jay Z and the Foo Fighters have become eligible this year. You add them to a list that, you know, of, of artists that still haven't been inducted in backlog that, you know, that's a mile long. And it, it's always so competitive just to, to compose a ballot, much less to then when you put them on the ballot, get them voted in. And so, you know, Diana Ross is one that probably falls into that category. But to be honest, I could name two dozen other ones off the top of my head that are that are also you know so deserving and and hopefully over time we always get it right and try to get everybody in um it's just you know it's uh, we're fortunate that we have so many great and deserving artists that we can draw from that well but um but it wouldn't surprise me certainly to see uh, her treated as a solo artist and inducted one day and in the same way that, uh, that we have, you know, Paul McCartney and Eric Clapton and, you know, and, and so many others. Or Michael Jackson and the Jacksons. Yeah. 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 So. yeah Jan I mean, Janet, well, Jan yeah, it, you know, it was, it was interesting. Um, Janet, you know, we inducted her a couple of years ago and she had originally told us she was planning to perform. But HBO was our distributor of that, and she was so upset with the, um, I believe, the Finding Neverland documentary and the way it portrayed her brother, that one of the reasons that she chose not to perform was she was upset with HBO, and she wasn't going to then perform on the live telecast. Um, she accepted her uh, her induction because of that rift that was going on at the time. I thought it was going to be something stemming back from Super Bowl. I forgot about that. Part yeah, no, it really wasn't. It wasn't the Super Bowl issue. It's so much to consider because um, even with now with booking guests, sometimes you have to do a quick Google search and make sure they haven't been canceled. And so, journalist, <laughs> you're always <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah, we live in a cancel culture too. So you know that's a. Yeah, and you've—I mean—you've handled some cases that in the past that have been. Do you have any suggestions for people who are going through crisis management? Because that's like you've worked with Michael Vick in the past. You've helped yeah. people with Lucy Anthony's juries and so on. Like, yeah, just a little bit of time sometimes. I'm not talking about the big people who deserve to be canceled. Like, clearly you earned it. But for the little, yeah. like, just said the wrong word when, like, in 2008 or something. I don't know. Yeah, you know, everything is so reactive these days, and social media is so toxic in terms of the spread of information and misinformation and so on. Um, you know, I mean, 
it, it depends on the situation. You know, get a good PR firm, get good PR counsel in terms of how to um, how to navigate you know rough waters. But there are certain there are certain basics in a crisis, which is apologize. You know, kind of state what you've learned from this. Uh, do what you can do to make amends or say that you'll you'll be on that path to do it. And we generally live in a pretty forgiving world. And so, you know, what what so often happens in a crisis is that the the party to it is so afraid of the reputational damage or the economic fallout that they forget the first tenet of crisis management, which is just to admit the mistake. So rather than allowing the media and others to keep digging to find to find the evidence to back it, it, it's so much easier to just say, I screwed up and I'm sorry and I won't do it again. And, and you know, when you use Michael Vick, the reason that Michael Vick and we were able to help him recover is that Michael Vick, you have to remember, didn't fight his dogfighting conviction. He pled guilty. He did not say it was the responsibility of my friends who were running the kennel while I was in Atlanta playing football. He said it was my home. I'm responsible. He said I bankrolled. He took responsibility. And, and he, he accepted his sentence. He went to prison. He actually, despite the fact that, you know, he declared bankruptcy, when he declared bankruptcy, he said, I just need some breathing room because of the situation. I'm going to pay my creditors back dollar for dollar, even though the bankruptcy court approved his bankruptcy and doesn't require that. He could have paid pennies on the dollar and been compliant. And then when he got out of prison and he signed, he paid back every creditor every dollar of his obligations over the, the length of his Eagles contract. And then obviously he went out and became a spokesperson and he became an advocate against dog fighting. And he went out into boys and girls clubs and schools quietly without media fanfare. He wouldn't even let us say that he was going and doing it. He'd do it every single week. And he'd go out and say, if you see something, say something. Here's my cell phone number. If you see something, I want you to report it. There's no shame in that. He was brought up in a situation where he, as a very young child, was exposed to dogfighting by people that were his relatives and respected. And so he didn't, he didn't see anything wrong with it. And he freely admitted, should he have? Of course. But he just didn't know better. So in his case, despite how you, people may feel about him, and there is a segment of society that will never forgive him who are you know, animal rights advocates or dog lovers. And I, I get that, right? I get it. But he did all the things right. He admitted his mistakes. He made amends for it. And he went out and now look at him. You know, he's on national television and Fox and widely respected as a commentator and, and so on. But quietly, Michael still does all the things he was doing when he got out of prison. He still goes in and speaks to kids. He still goes in and becomes an ad, you know, has been a, a, an advocate. He helped strengthen dogfighting laws by going to Congress and speaking to Congress about ways in which to do it. So he did everything the right way. But so many celebrities and so many others don't. Yeah. They, they become obstructionists. They, they don't go out and take responsibility. And therefore, the hurt, it, it, it's a death by a thousand cuts. And they fail to recover because of how they acted. And so, you know, there's your lesson in, in crisis management 101. Um, follow the Michael Vick plan. You know, I mean, truthfully, follow the plan in which you just take responsibility and then go do the right things and you can recover. It, it's, it's those that, that don't do that, that, that don't.
Well, this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much again for being my guest today. I cannot thank you enough for all the wonderful information I got from you today and make sure that everyone knows where to follow and learn more about, um, of course, your movies that are coming out, but also your organization. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me on and thanks for the uh, the advocacy of, uh, of, of production in North Carolina. And we'll keep, we'll keep chopping away at that tree and see if we can't, uh, you know, can't can't bring it down and get get more more jobs back here more production here and more spending you know it, it, it as you know hollywood is a big industry and and there's an old economic argument that and it revolves around those tax credits there's there's legislators who say that why are we giving money back well this is money that productions and financiers are bringing to the state that wouldn't be here otherwise. And and 75% of something is 75%. Nothing of nothing, if it doesn't come here, is nothing. And, and that's the thing that we have to remember, because it's not just the spending done by the productions, but the spending of all the people that are brought back here to support it, whether they're staying in a hotel or an Airbnb and they're renting a car and they're doing their dry cleaning and they're going to restaurants and they're they're spending in the local economies. And, you know, it's so short-sighted to take aim at a credit for the spending that wouldn't be there otherwise. And, and so hopefully... Uh, we'll see a pivot back where North Carolina can be even more competitive. It, it, the changes they made were, were good. It just needs a little bit more help. And I think we, we then could get back to where production used to be when they used to call, uh, you know, Wilmington and North Carolina, Hollywood East. Right. Right. We were third in the country. Or, no, yeah, yeah. Third in the nation for filming. Yeah. <laughs> They will be back, the Roaring Twenties, right? We're going to have yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, again, thank you so much, Rick French. It was so nice meeting you. And look forward to seeing all of the films that you have coming up soon on the big screen or streaming at home. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me. And uh, here's to a, a, a great 2021. Definitely. <laughs>